You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Well, the fascination with today's topic runs deep throughout history, and there are images that show us. Uh, we've been asking this question, uh, what about sex for generations? And uh, to say nothing of doing it, um, what does the Bible teach about sex? This is not necessarily the way my neighbors have framed the question for me, and I, I, don't, I don't see this question as such widely circulating in the culture, and yet the culture is preoccupied with the mystery of sexuality. It's all around us. A couple of cartoons to show you. Uh, here's a, a flasher and a couple of women, very blasé, walking by another Calvin Klein, Klein ad. Um, and then uh, here's a woman, with the pediatrician with her son. What makes you think... He's being harmed by inappropriate ads on TV. And the physician says, he asked if I thought if Cialis was right for him. Um, it's awkward conversation we have with our kids about sex. Uh, the story said that one father uh, finally buckled down and said to his son, you know, son, I think it's time we need to talk about sex. And his boy said, sure, dad, what is it that you'd like to know? Um, the only person more awkward in a conversation like that uh, than the parents is the, ch- the son. And I don't know if you can remember your own experience of uh, your parents giving you the talk, but uh, I definitely remember that moment. Um, I have no idea how my parents got into the subject. Uh, it, it just sort of caught me out of nowhere somehow. I'm sure they were very clever with the transition. They had me in a car, so I was sort of trapped. And um, at age 19, I think it was finally time for me to... Uh, <laughs> to figure out how things worked and, uh, you know, the, the, the stork and everything, the joke. And then my, one parent turned to the other and uh, then got past the joke of, and, and said, you know, it, it just it, sex will come up at some point and it's just important that you love the person that you have sex with. And uh, immediately there was a kind of a disagreement that someone else said, well, wait, 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 doesn't the Bible say something about sex? And there was this, I don't know, but does the Bible say something about condoms? Oh, no, of course it doesn't say anything. Well, we've got to talk about more than what the Bible says. And then if my, my parents are going back and forth, and pretty soon they're arguing with one another, and I'm just folding my arms in the back seat and going, that was close. <laughs> well, uh, we can ask the question, what is sex? And, uh, and we can think about the ways in which we hear that question, not only in our culture, but in our own lives, and even as we study the Scripture. And I have turned to help us with this question and some of its complexity to a philosopher named Caroline Simon, who's written a book called Bringing Sex into Focus. And Dr. Simon uh, uses the image of a lens uh, through which you see things. And she says, you know, oftentimes we struggle to get our our, uh, minds around what sex is because we're looking through different lenses. We miss each other when we talk about it because one person's looking through one lens and another, another lens. And so I thought it would be helpful to share with you her six lenses uh, through which we commonly think about uh, sex. And uh, I put them on the screen here for you. These are the six lenses that uh, Caroline Simon uh, describes in her book. And uh, just give you a quick definition for each of them, the uh, expressive lens. When we look at sexuality through the expressive lens, we see sex as something very close to our identity, there's a way in which we think of it as giving expression to some inner core, something private that's being articulated uh, somehow. Simon says that the expressive lens allows us to see sex as an act of self-empowerment in some cases. 
And we think that it's a part of human flourishing, uh, that, that, uh, that uh, uh, it's just a healthy part of becoming who you are, is to be uh, growing into fullness and health in your sexual expression. It's the expressive lens. Uh, the power lens. By the way, there are elements of truth and falsehood in the way that we uh, see sex through these various lenses, all of them. Here the power lens uh, uh, describes the, the power of the erotic. It has this compelling force in our lives. And whereas the expressive lens uh, helps us to think about sex as self-empowerment, here the power lens asks us to think about well, what are the effects on other people of, uh, of power. Sex is uh, about our vulnerability, and it's easy to meet someone in a very tender way in that place, but it's also easy to take advantage of that vulnerability. We talk about possessing the lover sometimes. That's sex through the power lens. On the negative side, uh, we can objectify and de dehumanize people when we turn them into objects, uh, nothing more than objects of our desire. Three, the plain sex lens. When we see sex through uh, the plain sex lens, uh, we see that it is physically pleasurable. It's a physical delight, uh, sex is. The title plain sex comes from an article in the 1970s by a man named Alan Goldman, who says, you know, now with the proliferation of birth control, sex and love, or sex and procreation, have and can be divided. And, and in fact, the connection between those two is really more of a social context than anything else. And we ought to be sort of open-minded enough to see that really what's happening at the core of sex, it's, it's physical bodily contact uh, between two human beings. And then the fourth lens, the romantic lens. Here, when we look at sex through the romantic lens, we see that there's a, a, a potential, at least, for a rich, deep, romantic and emotional attachment to happen uh, in the sexual experience, in the sexual relationship. And uh, we oftentimes think about physical and emotional intimacy as, as ideally correlating with one another, so that as a relationship uh, deepens in emotional intimacy, then it, it, it may, perhaps uh, would allow for us to have a little bit more uh, uh, physical intimacy that expresses that emotional intimacy. And we like to think through the romantic lens that sex is uh, reciprocal, self-giving, of, of giving pleasure to the other person, the beloved. Fifth, the procreative lens. Uh, of course, this recognizes the importance of child-giving and nurturing and giving birth to the next generation. Seen through theological uh, eyes, we see our sex as an opportunity to participate in the ongoing creative work of God, bringing life uh, through the mystery of, of sexuality into this creation. Biologically speaking, we understand that uh, sex is a, is a process in the propagation of the species and uh, in the preservation of the gene pool. And, and, and we might look at sex uh, that way through the procreative lens. And then finally, the covenantal lens. Here, sex is seen as a picture or a representation of God's embrace of humanity. God has made covenant with the human race, and sex becomes a picture of, of, of that uh, beautiful union between God and humanity. And, and it ought to be 
uh, it ought to be enjoyed in the context of marriage because sex is life uniting, uh, we say, during the, through, through the covenantal lens. So anyways, these six lenses may be useful to you. I, I think uh, we find them uh, as the question is raised in culture. We also find them as the Bible teaches us about sex. And I think you'd see that you probably see sex, as I do, through a number of them, if not all of them, and perhaps different lenses at different times. But I want to use this list to invite you now to think about your, your own experience of sexuality, maybe where you are today, and what it feels like to be aware that you're a sexual creature uh, as you worship in this moment. How do you ask this question in your own life? Um, what does my sexuality mean to me in this moment? And I would invite you, if it's helpful, to bow your head, perhaps close your eyes, and, and bring this question before Jesus Christ and lay it at his feet and let him lead you. Perhaps he'll call you to confession or invite you to lean upon him for sustenance and support or um, perhaps to um, just give thanks to him for who you are and the relationships you're experiencing in life right now. Let's come before him quietly. I think so often the word that people associate with Christians and sex is the word no. And it's unfortunate because I think our text this morning invites us to affirm yes. Yes. Sex is a good thing because it is a gift that God gives us. Yes. Sex is a good thing because it is a reflection of God's very being. Yes. It is good because it is an experience of the body, and the body is a gift. God has made this physical world and declared that it is good. And most of all, our sexuality signifies God's divine intention that you and I are made to be known to the core and to be completely loved. That's who we are. So, yes, we say yes Sex is good. It's not that we are against something as Christians. God, help us to be people who are known to be for something. To be for good sex. To be for healthy sexuality. And to be for, most of all, Jesus Christ. For he is the fulfillment of our sexuality. But we'll see that in this text. Would you open up your Bible to Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. That's on page 2 of the Pew Bible. And I guess almost any other Bible that you might have brought with you this morning. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, verses uh, 18 through 25. And if you're able, would you stand with me and let's read God's word aloud together. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. So that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading God's holy word. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the air and to every animal of the field. But for the man, there was not found a helper as his partner. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. 
Then he said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for out of man this one was taken. Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. If you've ever been to an eye doctor, you know the experience of that big machine they put over your eyes, those two round circles, and, and, and she tells you to look through the lens, and she says, now or now, now or now, now or now, what looks clear? And I want to do a little bit of an eye exam, I suppose, uh, with you this morning and ask you to kind of look twice at human sexuality. I want you to first look at God's ideal. Look at it back then in paradise. And then I want to invite you to look at it today as we experience it uh, in our own lives. So first, the first now, let's look at God's intention for sex as described in this passage. And I want to suggest to you that the word that God would have us associate with sex is the word know. K-N-O-W. This is actually the word that the scripture itself uses for sex. This is the verb, to know somebody. We see this in the beginning of chapter 4, the next chapter. Now the man knew his wife and she conceived and bore Cain. This is not their first meeting. Uh, This is uh, not that Cain finally was introduced to his wife. He knew her meaning he knew her intimately in a sexual way. This word know, in the general sense, it was knowledge through experience, knowledge gained through the senses. So you, you could see how it would be appropriate for sexual intimacy. It's a very experiential knowledge of somebody. It's a very intimate knowledge of somebody. And it's a very relational knowledge. Sex, therefore, is about this connection between people. Let me just take a moment to define some of the terminology I'm using. We talk about sex and sexuality. What I want to suggest to you is that sex is an act. It's an act. It's an intimate, an act of intimate connection. Sexuality is a design. It's a design, a capacity, a propensity, and a need for intimate connection. Not all of us have sex, but all of us have sexuality. All of us are made by God. We've been designed to know and to be known in very intimate ways. And we see the outcome of sexuality as the man and his wife are both, we read, naked and unashamed. There is no need to hide in this knowing. Why? The reason is it's a covenantal knowing. In fact, the language of knowledge, of knowing in the Bible, is the ancient language, even outside the Bible, for covenant-making. We see this in places where, for example, in Amos 3.2, the Lord says to Israel, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. What's he saying? God's not saying, I didn't really get to know any of the other families. I just hung out with you mostly. No, he's saying, I made covenant relation to you, Israel. You became mine. I embraced you as my own. I knew you. It's covenant language. Also, the language of bone and flesh is covenant language. Two kings might come into relationship with one another, and they'd make a treaty. 
And they would have called the treaty a covenant, a barit. And they would speak sometimes of being bone of each other's bone and flesh of each other's flesh. They weren't actually related, but the kind of kinship uh, language is a way of pledging their faithfulness to one another. So we see covenant language here. And, and, and we see a covenant outcome in this nakedness and unashamed. And also the word cling, uh, finally, here tells us uh, that covenant relationship is in view because covenants oftentimes use the word of clinging or cleaving as the old uh, translation would render verse 24 for us. So we ask, if we want to know what God's intention is for human sexuality, what is a covenant and how does sex relate to a covenant? Well, in its simplest terms, a covenant is a three-party relationship. Picture a triangle. The two parties in the ancient world would have been kings, oftentimes. Two kings come together. We, by the way, we have a lot of information about covenants uh, associated with kings because they, they tended to write a lot. They thought they, they were pretty important in society, and so they've left these documents, uh, their covenant arrangements. Two kings would come together, and, and they would have, there would be uh, three parties to that. They would invoke a third member of that triangle, and that would be the gods that they believed in, or heaven itself. And they understood that heaven was the guarantor of this relationship. Heaven was the witness to their promise. Heaven was the facilitator of, of this treaty. A covenant is a treaty in which there's unconditional love pledged. And a covenant is a treaty in which there is an oath, a promise. We see these elements right here in our text. We see, for example, the three persons in that there is God... The man and the woman. Uh, we see the oath in the words that Adam proclaims in verse 23. When he says, this at last is bone of my bones. Uh, John Calvin points out that he's not speaking to her. We would expect him to say, you at last are bone of my bones. But he's speaking rather to God. He's speaking a covenant word to the guarantor of this relationship. He's accepting her as his covenant partner from the hands of God. You have given me to her, and I receive her not only directly, but also as a gift from you. And so he proclaims this oath. Calvin calls it his wedding vow. And then we see this uh, unconditional love in its effect. In verse 25, these two are naked and unashamed. That is to say, it's a safe relationship. Because there is a faithfulness that bounds these two, binds these two uh, in their union. So how does sex fit into that? Well, it, it has been suggested that sex is the sign of the covenant. Covenants always had signs. That was there was a physical act that somehow gave physical embodiment and witness to the, the, the invisible uh, uh, reality of the covenant and the bond. It was a sign. It would be a handshake in some cases, which was far more significant than we use handshakes today, or a meal together. Or maybe you've read and wonder what's going on there in the Bible where one person puts their hand on the thigh of another person. Uh, the genitalia signifying a place of procreation and the, and the covenant reality. Uh, it's a sign of that covenant. And here God gives physical union. The two become one flesh as a sign of that Intellectual, emotional, and spiritual union that, uh, um, that grows out of the covenant of marriage. And sex is the sign of that. 
So if you think about that, that's pretty profound. It means when a husband and wife are embracing in physical intimacy, they are actually signifying a three-party relationship. They're actually calling upon heaven to reinforce that vow that they have made. They're drawing down God's power into their union. So we can think of sex as an invocation, an enacted prayer. Sometimes we work against that covenant commitment, don't we? I mean, we resist it and we make it hard. But God, who is always faithful, is working to pull us together in married life. C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters picks up an aspect of this when he says, The truth is that wherever a man lies with a woman there, whether they like it or not, a transcendental relation is set up between them, which must be eternally enjoyed or eternally endured. He's trying to get at the sense of it's not just a physical thing. God is in the midst of our sexuality. Now, that's God's intention. That's what we see in Genesis chapter 2. But before you and I tend to look around the room and say, well, who's doing that well and who's not doing that well? I'm here to tell you that there is nobody in this room who experiences that intention. Nobody. Because there's not a person in this room who lives in the Genesis 2 context. We all live on the other side of Genesis 3. See, the story continues. And we find out that the humans turn their back. We turn our back on God. And we break fellowship with him. And as we do, out of that deep spiritual alienation, there's a social alienation that repels us from one another. And we find ourselves in isolation, no matter what our relational configuration is, no matter what kind of social network we're living in. We find ourselves alone. Nobody's sexuality has gone through the fall untainted. We are all broken. We are all deeply misoriented. All of us. See, when we think about sex in our culture so often, the culture says, well, you know, if you're feeling sexual urges, the best outcome for you is, is to find yourself in marriage. And I want to tell you, marriage is a great thing, but marriage is not redemptive. Marriage is not what Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone comes to bring into the world. And marriage is a great gift. Don't mishear me. But marriage is not sufficient to address the, the core systemic issue that is festering at the heart of every human being alienated from God. We think, well, my problem is that I'm single. You may be single, but... That's not a problem to be solved necessarily. More than half of American adults right now are single. We found out in 2010. And, and there are a lot of reasons that we are not sexually active, engaged in the act of sex. Many of us are wounded, we're abused, we're frustrated, we're suppressed, we're addicted, isolated, physically unable. But the real issue is we live on the other side of Genesis chapter 3. We hide ourselves from one another. That's what the fig leaf business is all about. In hiding from God, we have to hide from each other because it is no longer safe for us to be who we really are. Jesus meets a woman at the well. And he knows something about her and he knows the same thing about me. And that is we've been going through life hungry and thirsty, moving from one thing to the next, from one relationship to the next, hoping to find satisfaction for our thirst. He says, you've been with five men, and the man that you're with right now is not your husband. But he doesn't say so to judge her. He says so to invite 
her deeper into knowing and being known that she has ever experienced before in relationship with himself. Come and ask me for water, Jesus says to her. See, there's a, a piece of, of you and me that longs, that yearns to experience that Genesis 2 context of paradise. And we just can't quite bring that piece to that context. So many young adults come to the marriage altar or want to come to the marriage altar hoping that that would mitigate the deep gnawing loneliness that they feel. But uh, I tell you, marriage itself is not paradise. And uh, I hate to disappoint you, but if you're, all you have to do is talk to a couple of us who are married. I mean, we love being married, many of us, uh, but it's not paradise. One a theologian says every marriage is lived outside of the gates of paradise. And that's true. Someone else said uh, it wasn't until I was, uh, uh, when I was, when I got married, I was truly, uh, forget it. <laughs> that laugh was better than the one you were going to get if I actually got the joke out. So. And the point is that God has not given us uh, a wedding altar. He has given us a communion table. He has given us himself, Jesus Christ, for our sexuality. Because we're designed for intimate uh, connection. God's covenant love is available to you and to me. And that's where we find intimacy. Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you will know the truth. And the truth will set me free, set you free. And Jesus is the truth. He says, I am the truth. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Luther describes how it is that Jesus' grace is so liberating. He says, speaking of marriage as an analogy, the third incomparable grace of faith is that it unites the soul to Christ as the wife to the husband, by which mystery, as the apostle teaches, Christ and the soul are made one flesh. Now, if they are one flesh, and if a true marriage, nay, by far the most perfect of all marriages, is accomplished between them, soul and flesh, for human marriages are but feeble types of this one great marriage, then it follows that all they have becomes theirs in common, as well good things as evil things, so that whatsoever Christ possesses, that the believing soul may take to itself and boast of as its own. And whatsoever belongs to the soul, that Christ claims as his. See, Luther is saying, in a much more real sense than any other, you and I are already married. We are married to God in Jesus Christ. And whatever belongs to Jesus has become ours. His righteousness, his life, his holiness, his wholeness. Whatever belongs to us becomes his, our brokenness, our misorientation, our alienation, our sin. So that's the great exchange that we experience at this table. Let's uh, respond to this great gift of God, that he has come to be bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh through a prayer of thanksgiving. Would you pray with me? God, we give you thanks. Thank you for coming. Because if we were to bear our souls before you this morning, we would acknowledge that our lives are broken and that Sometimes, as wonderful as the gift of sexuality is, it is also something that has deeply hurt us and something that scares us.
And so we lay ourselves bare before you as the only one before whom it is safe to do so. We thank you that you have moved towards us in love, that you've embraced us and welcomed us into all that you are to heal us and renew us and give us eternal life. In response, we give you our faith and we pledge our troth to you and we offer you all that we are. We thank you for this covenant and we pray that our tithes and offerings would be signs to us that we belong, body and soul, to you. Indeed, all this creation is yours and we trust you now, seeing the mystery of what you have done in the death and resurrection of our Savior with these gifts and with our very lives. Bless them by your Spirit's power as they go around the world. In the name of Christ, amen. started working at a, a new church, I came through the front doors of the office on my first day and there was a delightful woman volunteering at the desk and she wanted just to welcome me to this church and you're going to love this church. And she said, I, I was married by the first pastor who started this church, a wonderful uh, pastor and a great friend. And then she, she said, and then, and then the guy that followed him actually was there for 30 years. And uh, he married me to my second husband. And uh, he was a great guy as well. In fact, just got married a uh, third time with this uh, interim guy. And uh, uh, all the pastors of this church have been wonderful. And I, my jaw just kind of dropped. And I thought, well, if you, know, if you ever need me, just let me know. I'm, <laughs> I'm here. But you know, I, I love the fact that uh, she was living with the reality of the brokenness, as we all do of our lives, in the context of a community. Because we have to ask the question, how do you live with this question? When we've done the now or now deal, and we've seen the way sex is uh, meant to be in its ideal state, and we realize we're not there, how do we live with the unfulfillment of this age? We do see Jesus, but we see him with the eyes of faith. And until we see him face to face, then our sexuality points us to Jesus, but does not ultimately fulfill us in Jesus. We await that time until faith will be sight and we'll know so much more. But in the meantime, how do we live the question? Well, your answer to that question, and yours may be different from mine, but it would have to address the fundamental need that we have in our loneliness. It's the fundamental need that God is trying to address in humanity in verse 18. It is not good for the human being to be alone. Your answer to the question would have to address loneliness, but it would also have to address the problem of shame. Because it's not just being with other people or even being close to other people, because frankly that can be very, very dangerous. As, as, as we all know, if we've gotten close to people, we can be deeply hurt. And there is shame when we're so vulnerable. So these two questions must be addressed somehow. Because you and I have an insatiable thirst for what God has created us for. And sex makes a promise that it cannot fulfill. See, in the brokenness of our sexuality, we will not find healing in the bedroom. We'll only find it in Jesus Christ. We'll find it through community. 
Just as an illustration of this, if I go to my wife and try to find in her satisfaction for my deepest need, I set her up to fail. I set the relationship up to fail from the very beginning. You ask yourself, why do so many men who are happily married have affairs? Well, I'll tell you why we do it. It's because it feels good in a moment to have someone blow smoke up your skirt and to begin to offer you some fresh source of validation to, to say, man, you're the greatest guy. Your self-worth begins to float. Your identity is secure. If you, if you seek that in another human being, I don't care who it is, you will find yourself not moving into freedom, but moving into slavery. Sex just can't deliver on that promise. But you know what can? A community that is beginning to embody the grace of Jesus Christ. With the covenant that God has made with you and me in Jesus Christ comes a community. It's called the church. It's the covenant community. It's the community that is shaped by the regular eating around this table, the communion table. This is what we mean when we talk about being alive in Christ. To share hope, we need one another. The word share is a reflection of the word for fellowship, for communion, for participation. We're one with God in Jesus Christ. We're one with each other in Jesus Christ. What would it mean for us to really be a community of grace here at UPC? Think about that community of grace. There are two parts to that. There's the community and there's the grace part. Community. What would it take for our singles to find a kind of a relational connection here at UPC that gives them strength for the constant daily struggle of faithfulness and chastity with respect to their sexuality. What would it take for our married people? I mean, the vows that we take, it's amazing. Not to have to do that alone, but to do that in the context of a community that encircles us when we fall, it pulls us up with love, the love of Jesus Christ that pushes us together with gentle accountability and says, you can do this and we're going to do this with you. We're really called to be a community of communities here at University Presbyterian Church. Communities that live together because we're alive together in Jesus. Are you a part of that? Have you found a way to really be known here and to know others? I hope you have. And and if you have, then would you work with me to make this a place where more people can go deeper and find more intimate and safe relationship here at uh, UPC. The other part of that community of grace is the grace part. I don't need to tell you how broken and painful our lives are in this area of sexuality. And it's so tempting to fall into the divisiveness of our culture that's turned this into a political issue. And that's not Jesus at all. At all. Jesus doesn't tell us so much of what he's against as what he is for. And he is for grace. You know what happens when the religious leaders of Jesus' day who are trying to draw their lines and find clarity, bring to Jesus a woman who's been hurt and she's deeply vulnerable. She's been caught in adultery and they want to stone her. And Jesus says, well, you know, if you don't have any sin in your life, you could be the first one to throw the stone. Draws in the dirt. We don't know what he draws. But what he did was he turned the whole situation back to each individual. He says, it's not about what you can do as a group to bring her into line. I want to tell you, condemnation has never changed a single life. 
The law is just not helpful that way. What we need to change is a living, vital relationship with the one who loves us and satisfies us in the core of our being. Jesus Christ, the one who presents himself as God's grace in the world. That's why he comes, to give grace, grace that is greater than all of our sin. I want for us to be a community that just oozes the heart of Jesus Christ and his grace, that has a reputation in this city and around the world. Those people have so much grace, no matter what you're going through or who you are. I know what will happen if you join that community. You'll know that you're loved deeply. How do we do that? What would it look like for you to be a part of that, to encourage that among us? Well, let's prepare ourselves for this table. As I say, God has given us a table to draw us into communion and to touch us physically and to make us one. You might want to again bow your head and close your eyes and and think about what it would mean for you to bring all that you are intellectually, all that you are emotionally, all that you are spiritually before your Savior Jesus Christ and find the freedom of being naked and unashamed. Hear these words of the Apostle Paul. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part. Then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. At the center of our community is this table, which is the table of our Lord Jesus Christ. You and I are invited to this table in all of our beauty and our brokenness. We're invited to the beauty and the brokenness of Jesus. We are embraced at this table in our intimacy and loneliness. Jesus presents himself to us in this bread and the cup, and Jesus also is still to come. He's not here yet. And our loneliness keeps driving us forward and calling us on to his promise of return. And you and I are invited to this table as an act of hope. We eat and drink in hope that that there is still a wedding that we're invited to. Jesus is the bridegroom. We are God's beloved. And we know that every longing will be fulfilled in celebration and in song. And so we do this. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and giving thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, and after he had given thanks, he blessed it, and he gave it to his disciples and said, Drink this, all of you. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood that has been poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. Let us pray together. Holy God, we confess that we are not worthy to even even gather the crumbs from under your table, and yet... Through the free gift of your Son, we come as your people to participate in the celebration of love and thanksgiving. Lord, may we be rooted and grounded in your love, and may we be empowered to go forth from here in service to you and your kingdom. Amen.
going to invite the uh, ushers to come forward, the servers to come forward. And in just a moment, you will be receiving the bread and the cup. And take the bread in your own time as a symbol of your personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. But hold the cup. And we will uh, drink the cup together as a symbol of our unity uh, in our Lord Jesus Christ. The gifts of God for the people of God. Every sin is forgiven, every sinner made whole at the table of our Lord and Savior Jesus. We drink the cup of forgiveness together. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.